All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. O Holy Spirit, you have caused your word to be written for our learning and to be spoken so that it may be proclaimed. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds as we again look into your word today, that you would help us to understand what you would have us know, but most of all to believe what you have written, that it would be for our good and for the good of others. These things we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Father, one God, now and forever. Amen. You did better than the folks in the first service, who I think I heard a couple of people say amen this morning. They're not awake, they're cold, or they've just forgotten. So if you haven't been to the divine service yet, if you're coming at, uh, what is it, 1045, please remember your responses, the amens. Those are your responses, so I'm not going to prompt you, I'm just going to, okay, you don't believe it. That's why you didn't say anything, so remember, that's what it means. Yes, this is true, I believe it. All right, we have been talking about the doctrine of election, and um, today we're going to be looking at, uh, I'm not sure we finished this point last time. Uh, let me just begin with this before we go on to this next section. <clears throat> and part of this, uh, I've been reading to you from the formula of Concord, but uh, it, it is the last point that we were considering the last time I was here, that's what, two weeks ago. To make God the cause of dam damnation is not scriptural. The formula says the, so the, yeah, the source and cause of evil is not God's foreknowledge, since God neither creates nor works evil, nor does he help it along and promote it, but rather the wicked and perverse will of the devil and of men, as it is written, Israel, thou hast plunged thyself into misfortune." but in me alone is thy salvation. Likewise, thou art not a God who delights in wickedness, Psalm 5, 4. And then uh, the question, what does Jesus say about who is chosen? Turn to John 13, 18. As they say, I'm not sure if we did this or not last time, but we'll do it again. John 13, verse 18. <clears throat> Okay, Jesus is speaking. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So, uh, Jesus is telling us here that he knows, but the question now is, can any human being know? Let's turn now to 2 Timothy 2.19. <clears throat> 2 And maybe you're there already. And here Paul says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are His. So God knows. You and I, however, do not know. We're not going to know. So to pry into that question about <clears throat> who is saved and who is not saved is not for us to know. There are many things that God has not chosen to reveal to us. Um, I think that's one of the difficulties we often have is that we want to pry into... God's purposes, even His foreknowledge, we want to know, why, God, are you doing this? 
as though he owes us an answer. Uh, and it isn't that otherwise than it is by sight and not by faith. So we live by faith and not by sight, as the Scripture says. All right, this next section is being sure of one's election. And uh, that's very important because nothing is more important than knowing that one is among the elect, and nothing could be more distressing than to doubt that God has chosen you for salvation. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and following. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 15. I would have you read, but I know if you read, nobody else will hear you if they're on opposite ends of the room, so I'll just read. And I'm reading from the ESV, and I know most of you are looking at the NIV, uh, which you use. And <clears throat> years ago, when that first came out, I have to admit that I found it very difficult to read that publicly in the service. It just seems like I stumble over it. For me, it doesn't flow according to my thought patterns. <laughs> and there are some who say, oh, it, it was meant to be read aloud. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really awkward in places, the word order. Um, so anyway, uh, they're just about the NIV, why I sometimes I, I want to go somewhere else and it's taking me someplace different. All right, Second, Second Thessalonians 2.13, following. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by his, the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. <coughs> Excuse me. So, the question that I'm going to ask you then, what does Paul direct you to do in order that you may be sure of your election? What does he tell you to do? Hold to the teachings. In other words, here we are. We're back to the point that we made at the very beginning that all of this is in the context of the Word and the sacraments. The, uh, a very simple way of maybe understanding this would be uh, you have a, a power receptacle here in the wall. And as long as your device is plugged into that, it's going to work. I realize most, you know, everything is running on batteries these days. But at some point you have to recharge it. You have to have power, whether it's stored or whether it's um, direct. As soon as you unplug it, you have lost the source of power. So if you were to consider that the Holy Spirit, say as soon as you are disconnected, you have lost the power. So that's what Paul is saying here. Hold to the traditions that you were taught. Use them. Either, he says, the spoken word or our letter. That is, the word of God as it is written. So we have the word of God written. And most of us tend to think of that when we say the word of God. But uh, the ancients uh, did not have written books. Most people did not. And even up until Luther's day, very few people had books because Gutenberg hadn't been around yet and invented movable type. So books were very expensive, hand copied. But it is always the oral word which should predominate. Uh, we don't want to get into the position of worshiping a book. 
This is just the written record of what is meant to be spoken. And uh, a prime example of that would be in Acts chapter 8. I'll just read this to you. <clears throat> I had to write a paper on this when I was in undergrad. Where did you do your... Okay, Ann Arbor, you were at Ann Arbor. Did you happen to have Professor Hasseld? Yes. <laughs> yeah, he assigned papers, and one was here. Uh, Philip and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch. And it says he, he was directed by the Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord, sent him, go down there, and you're going to find this guy. It's a des desert place. And uh, uh, this Ethiopian eunuch was uh, an official of Candace, or Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, so he was a God-fearer. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the question that I remember we, we had to answer was, how did Philip know he was reading the prophet Isaiah? And uh, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. There's the answer. He was reading aloud. Why? Because the ancients believed that words had power only when they were spoken. You know, words have power. They, words are meant to be spoken, not just committed to paper or screen. Uh, so the word was always meant to be spoken. So when the scriptures uh, talk about the word, uh, it is assumed that that word is going to be oral. But you know, today, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you all have Bibles in the pew, so you take the Bibles out and look at that while the, while the, uh, the pastor is reading the reading. Or in some churches horror of horrors, they have a screen and they put it up on the screen as though that is better than you listening with your ears. Paul says, Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing. <laughs> faith comes by hearing. In other words, not just, well, here, here's a book, read it. Uh, now, I'm not saying that the words on the page do not have power, but words are meant to be spoken and not simply gathered into volumes and put into libraries, but they are meant to be spoken. So with the Word of God, it is meant to be spoken, and that's what Paul is saying here, either by our spoken word or by our letter, which then would be read to the congregation, as we do today. So when we have the epistle, we are reading a letter and uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the portions in the lectionaries are rather short. And we don't get the full flavor or the context of it. But uh, in the early church, if they had a letter from one of the apostles, they would read the whole thing. And they may read it a couple of times uh, so that everybody had a chance to digest it. <clears throat> But the point here, being sure of your election, is to continue to use the means of grace, the Word of God. As soon as you disconnect from that, you have put yourself at risk. Okay? Uh, turn to Matthew 16, verse 18. <clears throat> And this is a, a different context here. This is uh, where Peter makes his marvelous confession of faith. When Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, <clears throat> Simon Bar-Jonah, that's son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the rock we know is not the person of Peter, but it is the faith in Christ. So it rests upon Christ. So no one can thwart God's election because it is built on the rock, and Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against that. John chapter 10, 28. And I think we have, we have looked at this passage previously. <clears throat> John 10, 28. And I... I'll read it first. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to start at uh, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we can be sure of our election because it is Jesus who gives us eternal life, and it says no one can take this person snatched this person. The idea of stealing someone out of his hand as though he were not paying attention. And he said, they are, you are in the Father's hand as well, and I and the Father are one. In other words, the Father and Jesus are together in this. And so we say to be in the hands of God is an absolutely secure place to be in his hands. But this is, again, a connection to Jesus. So you can be sure because Jesus has you in his hand. And no one can steal you from his hand. The devil cannot. He will try his best, but he will not succeed. Okay, Acts 13, 48, and then we'll stop for a minute and see if you have any questions up to this point. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles, well, this uh, start the verse before. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorying, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, if God has chosen you to eternal life, you have it, but you, you have to be still connected to him. You can't separate yourself and say, well, I don't need the church. Maybe you've had a discussion with somebody who's saying, well, I, I believe I can be a Christian without going to church. I, I don't like that term, going to church. A church, that word has five different meanings in English. Saying, going to the divine service, because what is the divine service? It is the distribution of the gifts of God. That's why you go to the divine service to receive God's gifts. That's it. You don't come to give God something, although you do give Him praise, but that, the, the purpose of the divine service is not praising God. The purpose is for you to receive the gifts. Otherwise, you could do this at home, right? You have to receive the gifts. You cannot have the sacrament of the altar in your home, in your little shrine, although some may want to. And that happened during uh, the Middle Ages where they had private masses. Uh, and the Lutheran confessions are pretty clear. The mass is for all the Christians, not just a private one. Well, they'll have a mass, just you come in and we'll have a mass here ourselves. Just you and me will do this. And then that's when the church got the idea, well, we could, we could make money off of this. So we'll have all these private masses. You want to have a mass said for your, your, uh, your dear mother. 
Uh, we used to have a man lived up the street from us. He's long since deceased. He was a very faithful Roman Catholic. And I always thought, oh, if Lutherans were only so faithful. Every morning, Harold would walk down to St. Patrick's and have a mass said for his parents. Every morning, without fail. Didn't matter if the snow was a foot deep, he'd be walking back. You'd see him walking back. But he would have masses said for his parents, private masses to get them out of purgatory. Such a dedicated son. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they decided to have these uh, private, and uh, that is not the purpose of the, the Mass, if I can use that term. We use that term, the divine service. It is, the Germans have it. Who knows the German word for the divine service? Gottesdienst. Any of you know German? Gottesdienst, literally God's service. It isn't our service of God, it's God's service of us. So that comes over into English, uh, divine service or God's service, in which he serves us with word and sacrament. So that's the purpose, to keep you connected. So it isn't that you need to give God something, it's that you need something from God. That's why you come. So as long as you do that then, uh, you are staying connected. You are appointed, you are believing, your faith is nourished and sustained. But you can't do that on your own. That's why there is the church, as I said. The Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. We need each other. You can't go it alone. All right, let me stop here and pause for any discussion if you have any. You're all cold this morning, huh? It's just not, not awake yet. No, I don't know how much it would cost. Does, Walt, do you know? What they charge from, what they would charge for private masses? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> we did. Well, that was, that was, uh, you know, up until uh, Pope Leo's advisors showed him the sheets in that, that old black and white Luther movie, it's, I think it's one of the best where he was saying, so, you know, we've got this guy causing the trouble up there in Germany, and uh, then they say, oh, but here, you need to look at our revenues, and his eyes get that big, <laughs> you know, when he realizes, you know, Luther has been preaching against the indulgences and, and all the rest of that traffic, and th they were losing lots and lots of money and the german people were saying why are we sending our money to rome we can use it here and uh it had to be a considerable amount of money and they were already in hock for saint peter's which you know you look at it on christmas eve when they show the mass there and the pope celebrates the mass in saint peter's and say wow what a magnificent structure yeah and it was built upon the backs of countless generations of of europeans in particular you know, um, so in other words, the, the masses were never meant to be private. They were always meant to be public, in which the people came to receive the gifts of God. So just remember that that direction is you come to receive primarily. And there is your praise and thanksgiving for what you get. Uh, as if somebody were to give you a gift on your birthday. And you would say, Thank you. But uh, the, the, the whole matter is that you come to receive in the divine service. Okay. After a uh, number of years ago, I had the service, and my pastor came up with this little uh, uh, box of, of the Lord's No, that's, that's not what's meant by the private masses. That's, uh, say, those are, those are special circumstances where you wish to receive the gifts of God because you're going to have surgery and, you know, you want to be, you want that assurance of the forgiveness of your sins before you go under the anesthesia. 
uh, it's a good thing to do. But that wouldn't be uh, the use of a private mass where you were trying to avoid the divine service. That's a good question. That's, we say that's the exception. But obviously, if you could receive it in the divine service, uh, that, would, that would be good. Uh, I'll tell you a story about when our older son was married. And uh, they wanted to have the sacrament at their wedding. And I know they're all the questions about, well, you know, we're going to have people here who can't commune and we don't want to offend them, you know. I'm past, way past that, about offending somebody because this is the right thing to do. And uh, there was uh, my son's one, one brother-in-law who is a pastor, and he said, well, you know, that'll, that'll be awkward and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but our son and his wife insisted that they have the sacrament. Um, Less than a week later, her father died suddenly of a heart attack. And this son, the pastor, uh, came to me and he says, I, I was at the funeral, he said, I was against doing that, but he said, I am so thankful that we did that, that we received the sacrament together on this occasion. And it became a, a source of great comfort for him. Um, so lest we disparage the gifts when they are given, say, well, people say, well, man, this is going to take a whole lot longer. And uh, I know you have, you have the alternating services where you don't have the sacrament in each service. And I'm not going to get in, I'm not going to stick my neck out and get it chopped off for that. But to say, you know, if you didn't want to come, you could, you could come just the flip-flop where you never had to go to the sacrament, say, but I'm here every week. I don't have to go to the sacrament just by doing that. And um, uh, the sacrament is beneficial. Uh, and Luther has plenty to say about that, about, you know, don't get yourself into the place where you begin despising it. So it is the gift of God which you need to nourish your faith, to strengthen your faith, and that is at the, the blessing, may this strengthen and preserve you. May the body and blood of Christ strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, to life everlasting. That's the blessing that is spoken at the end of the distribution, isn't it? Strengthen you. That's keeping you connected so that you can be sure of your election. That as you are using word and sacrament, God is hanging on to you. She's saying, can an individual reject his election or was he never elect? That, that's kind of a question I think Calvin would answer. He said, well, then he would have been chosen to be damned. No, a person could, could reject the faith. But to say, well, was that person elect? Now you're getting into God's knowledge. And that's, that's a question that really can't be answered. To say, well, did that person believe? Yes, we have plenty of instances in the New Testament where there were those who believed and then denied the faith. So I guess then we'd have to say if they died in that unbelief, then they were not among the elect, even though they used word and sacrament. Um, they probably didn't use it faithfully. Something happened that drove them away from it. So that when people begin absenting the divine service, uh, then you know you, you, have, you have some kind of spiritual illness going on. Something's happening. And then it's the duty of this person's fellow Christians to speak. And not, not in a scolding tone. You know, you need to be there. But to find out why. What's happening? What, what, what is attacking your faith? Well, we know it's Satan attacks our faith. And um, what does Paul tell us in Ephesians? Take up the armor of God. He says you've got to dress like a soldier. 
And uh, it is taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You have to use the Word of God, otherwise you are defenseless on the battlefield. Okay, we'll continue, unless there's something else at this point. Um, Question then, does this mean then that if I am elect, I can do what I want, even living a sinful life because I have this election? All right, let's turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And uh, these are familiar words, I'm sure. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So why has the Scripture been given? According to what Paul says here, that you may be competent, equipped for every good work. You need the Word of God if you're going to continue to live in connection with Christ. And these words are addressed to those who are Christians. Luke 13, 1 to 5. Luke 13. Okay, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what is it that Jesus means or is telling us about our lives? What is to be constant? Maybe you didn't get that out of that passage. I think you said it, yes, repentance. Repentance. So, how do we begin the divine service? And uh, Setting aside the hymn to enter. How do we begin? Confession and absolution. Yes, we begin with repentance. We confess to God who we are, what we are, and ask for His forgiveness because we need forgiveness more than anything else. And so, it should come as no surprise to us that Luther's 95 Theses has as thesis number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He means that the whole life of the Christian is to be one of repentance. You and I don't get done repenting until the day that we are put in our graves till we die. That is your daily activity. So when you, Luther says, in the morning when you get up, you make the sign of the Holy Cross and you say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Where was that first done for you? In baptism. So it is a recollection of your baptism that you are baptized into the death and the resurrection of Christ. That your life is one of repentance and forgiveness. And then he says you pray the Our Father, or confess the creed, pray the Our Father, and you can add his little morning prayer. And and in the evening, it's just the same thing again, only with his evening prayer. That's the only change. So that you're the, the bookend of your life is really one of remembering your baptism, repentance and forgiveness. Okay, so this is, uh, this is an important, important thing uh, in our daily lives. And I know 
everyone lives a hectic life for the most part. And this is one of the perennial... Oh, I'll use the word problems that you have in Christian families. Say, when do you when do you have devotions? You know, with your schedule, sometimes many of you might not even eat together. You know, if you have children and they're in activities, it's like eating by shifts. You know, well, yeah, the food's there in the refrigerator. Food's you know, it's over there. Fix yourself something to eat, and then you say, "Well, we don't ever have time to sit down and do this." Because the evenings are like that. In the middle of the day, you can't do that. And you, some of you are at work, the kids are at school, and then, then there's morning, and that's, that's, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> it's early in the morning, unless you've got a complete family of early risers. Uh, usually, you're dragging your kids out of bed in the morning. But at some point, you have to do this, and you can do this yourself, which is why Luther teaches it in the catechism the small catechism for children to do this. You teach them how to do this. So there is always this recollection of your baptism and reclaiming the gifts that God has given you in it. Uh, any discussion about that? I don't want to go past it too quickly, but maybe it's evident. All right, let's move on then. Um, Luke twenty four forty seven. <clears throat> And we'll start at uh, 46, Luke 24, 46, and 47. Uh, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So again, uh, we, we cannot... Uh, simply assume that I don't have to repent, that I don't need the gifts of God, that I don't need His forgiveness. Uh, the, the marching orders of the church are right there. I mean, even if you didn't have Matthew 28, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's saying that the church's marching orders are preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. And if the church doesn't do that, it ceases to be the church. So if you've got, and there are plenty of churches out there that um, do everything but preach repentance. Because, you know, we wouldn't want to tell somebody you're sinful because they might not come back. And if they don't come back, we aren't going to be able to pay for our stuff. So, uh, th those you want to run away from those as fast as possible. Um, repentance and forgiveness of sins. So, we're talking about how you can be sure of your election, and, and it's, you see, it's always connected to word and sacrament, isn't it? It's never outside of that. Um, 2 Peter 3 9. The question here is. What is God's will regarding all people? 2 Peter 3, 9. <clears throat> we could have had the, uh, the one from Paul. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But uh, this one is slightly different uh, because it talks about uh, the day of the Lord. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the will of God is that everyone is saved. But if everyone is not saved, then whose fault is it? It's not God's fault. So you can't say, well, now what about this guy? Uh, we don't think that he was saved at the end. Doesn't seem that way. So God must not have chosen him. We have to say, no, this, this person has turned his back on God. God wants to save everybody. 
even people who are ones maybe we'd rather not see saved. <laughs> and that's maybe uh, uh, something that's hard for you to admit to yourself that, you, yeah, there are some people I hope God doesn't save because they're just so horrible. And I'm going to have more to say about that uh, upcoming sermon, preview of coming attraction. A uh, couple of weeks, I think, uh, where, where we will talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit. But, um, and that ties in here, but I'm not going to bring it in right now. Um, so God wants everyone to be saved, and he is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But some people will never repent. Sad thing. I mean, I say, all right, they're We've seen a lot of that in the news where people get caught in immorality and whatever, and they say, well, I'm, I'm sorry if I offended you. That's not repentance. That's, I'm just, hey, I'm, I'm not sorry myself, but I'm sorry if you're offended. In other words, that's your fault. This is a way of throwing the, throwing the burden on somebody else and say, you should feel guilty for being offended. No, you're the one who you say, I offended you. Uh, I repent, forgive me. But we aren't hearing a lot of that out of people who are caught. I don't hear a lot of what I would call real repentance going on. It's just, okay, I got caught. Well, you know, I made a mistake. You murdered 10 people. <laughs> that's, that's a, no, a mistake is when you misspell a word. You know, and autocorrect doesn't catch it. That's a mistake. Or you, you, you turn the wrong way at the intersection. That's a mistake. But, but killing 10 people or starving your children to death? Uh, some of these are just too, they're almost too heinous to talk about. And you say, well, I'm, I'm sure God wouldn't want that person to be saved. Except we have the word that says he doesn't want anyone to perish. But these people are going to perish, not because God was unfair, but because they refused to repent. You know, God can't make you repent. Just like you can't make your child. You know, when your child gets caught and you say, Tell her you're sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I used to say, well, please say it like you mean it. <laughs> and even that's hard to do, to say, well, did you really mean it? I mean, you have to teach children to do this. I'm not saying don't tell your children to... I'm going to use the term here, confess their sin to somebody. We say, tell them you're sorry apologize no to apologize strictly speaking means to make a defense the apology the augsburg confession is not we're sorry we wrote the augsburg confession it's the defense of the augsburg confession so when you apologize you are in a, in essence defending yourself against a false accusation well no in this case don't do that but tell your teach your child to say I have sinned against you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And husbands and wives ought to do that to each other too. Not just say, I'm sorry. And then the other one says, that's okay. No, it isn't okay. You know, we need, we need to speak in a Christian way to each other when we have wronged someone. And not just the, the throwaway words that you're, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if you really mean it. But to say to your, your friend, your neighbor, your spouse, even your child, if you have to. I'm sorry, I did wrong to you. Please forgive me. Ask for an absolution. Just don't be satisfied with, no, oh, that's okay. No, it wasn't okay, or I wouldn't have told you. You know, if I thought it was that trivial, I wouldn't have said anything. So the whole matter of, say, confession and absolution on a, on a personal level ought to be of that sort where you actually confess a sin. Uh, that's hard to do. Somebody said the three hardest words 
are I am sorry. And the next three hardest words are I forgive you. <laughs> right? You know that. It's, uh, it's tough. But that's what it means to live in repentance. And ask for the absolution if you have to. Say, well, please forgive me. And maybe that person might not be ready to forgive you. That person may say, I'm, I'm still too angry with you right now. That's when you have to have a real heart-to-heart -heart and say, I need your forgiveness. Okay. Uh, All right. <laughs> well, see, this she's asking about what about people who have grown up in a non-Christian background and have not heard the word of Christ? Well, the passage that uh, we read before from Luke 24, that forgiveness and repentance are to be preached to all the world. This is the, this is the church's job is to proclaim this to the world, to proclaim it. But nowhere are we told that everybody is going to believe. And uh, probably the question that always follows is, well, what about those people who haven't heard? Uh, that's God's problem, not mine. In the sense that, okay, I don't know why, but in a lot of these places, the gospel had gone out into these, many of these Muslim nations. There were Christians there. There, there were Christians in Iran, in Iraq, and they had been run out. But the gospel did go out very early, and then Satan got in there and corrupted it. And, uh, you know, we think that we're safe here in this country. We're not so safe anymore. The government's not our friend when it comes to confessing the faith. You know, I would have said that 10 years ago, I would have said, nah, that, well, 15 years ago. Something like what has happened would never happen here. Where you can't, you can't speak the truth. Uh, you can't speak the truth in Canada. If you speak against homosexuality, you can be arrested and fined. They have no freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is, is uh, in danger in our nation because people don't, well, who are you to say we're wrong? You're a bigot if you tell me you're, that I'm wrong. Um, you know, it's going to be like it was in the very early church or those who confess Christ were put to death. The persecution. But then the question would be, why does God allow that? Well, the, the old saying is true. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more the church was persecuted, the more the church grew. Because people said, wow, you're going to die for that? And, there, you know, I have to say this about Americans. There aren't too many things for which we are willing to die. Except texting while you're driving. Still see a lot of people doing that. It's against the law, but they're still doing it. But, I mean, how many of us would be willing to... Some uh, a story, I guess it's true, I don't know, maybe uh, someone asked... Uh, a teacher ask a class make a list of five things that you would be willing to be shot for tomorrow morning there weren't too many things on the list 
No, we, just peace. We should, we should just all get along. But it's, it's, that's going away. Or for you to make your confession of faith and to be a faithful Christian uh, may not get you certain jobs. You may be ostracized. And 50 years ago, that was totally unheard of. But, uh, well, if you are uh, a person who is nominated for a federal court, and this has happened with some Roman Catholics because of their position on pro-life, or they are not going to get confirmed because they stand up for life. You're not going to support abortion, then you're, you're a bigot. We can't have bigots on the court. There's a, uh, an LCMS woman judge out in the northwest somewhere who uh, has been, uh, they've, they've really attacked her. And I don't know if she's going to be confirmed or not because she is pro-life. So you say, well, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever career was there for the truth. Anyway, uh, okay, we got a little off of the topic there. Let's stop here because it's time. Are there any closing questions that can be answered quickly? And not those long ones. You know, that was always something that seemed to happen a lot of times in, in the seminary. Some guy would wait until the end of the class hour to ask this complicated question. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> we don't have time to do that. <laughs> Should have asked that 20 minutes ago. All right, nothing quick, then we will close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Good.